Welcome, everyone, to the Canadian Perspective, your source for leftist political news. I'm your host, Cole Rader, and today, Derek is not with us. Unfortunately, there was a terrible accident, and I'm afraid that he will not be participating in the podcast anymore. (laughs) Yeah, basically, he was busy, but the show must go on, so... I'll be doing it by myself. I would also like to remind you guys to download the podcast, follow our social media platforms on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube in case we actually post some things. (laughs) And um, that really helps us out. So I just want to remind you guys. But into the stories we go. So this is an after the fact recording on a story that happened in Manitoba that's absolutely crazy, absolutely unacceptable. and. I mean, I can't believe when I saw this story, I I absolutely lost my shit. So basically, the progressive conservatives are introducing 19 new bills into the House, right? Something that you would do, but is doing it secretly. They're introducing these 19 new bills and not making any text available for the opposition parties or the public to review. The only information we have from these bills are the titles, and that's it. And apparently, judging from the titles, they deal with um, things like the education system, the healthcare system, and childcare programs. Uh, but other than that, we have no idea what the fuck's in them. And they were tabled in the legislature months ago. So this is completely undemocratic. If you don't know um, how legislation works, basically, on a federal level and a provincial level, when somebody writes legislation that then has to be voted on later on, immediately they make the text of the legislation public, of the bills and whatnot, because, you know, transparency in government, we should be able to see what our elective representatives are doing. And so, but the uh, provincial conservatives are just like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to hide what we're doing by casting a shroud over the bills that we're trying to introduce. And, I mean, my first thought was, this is illegal, isn't it? How are they allowed to do this? This is completely unacceptable, right? But apparently, according to the current rules of the legislature, so the current rules of the legislature do not expressly forbid bills from being introduced in this way. But this is extremely unethical, anti-democratic, and it just screams ignorance. And, and Pallister went out, and this is the statement he made, he made, quote, we're ready to play nice, but we're also the elected government of Manitoba. So I would encourage the opposition not to try to pretend that they are the government. They are not, end quote. That is such an arrogant comment to say. It's just, it's ridiculous. And then his explanation or the conservative's explanation of over why they're doing this doesn't directly address the issue of why they introduced these bills and not made them public or to the opposition. Instead, what he said was, oh, the reason why we're introducing all these bills is because last spring, so in March 2020, the NDP did some obstruction to prevent the budget from, to stop it from being passed because the conservatives are trying to ram through a bunch of other bills uh, because it, that was before the date. That Thursday, when they were doing the budget proceedings last year, they were trying to ram through a whole bunch of bills and the NDP was doing some, you know, within the rules of the legislature, they were you know, blockading and doing procedural delays, as it's called, which is playing politics. I mean, I don't see a problem with that. And apparently he says, oh, we asked him for unanimous consent in December so the bills could be distributed over the winter. But that request was refused. And he's saying, oh, Pallister said, Pallister said, we're just trying to catch up. And so apparently the legislature is going to be called back Wednesday to have more time to deal with the bills. But like, we're doing our best to catch up. Okay, so 
why is the text not public though? You still haven't addressed that. You've addressed why there's 19 bills being introduced on one day, basically, which is a shitload, and on very important issues, like I mentioned before, but you still haven't addressed why you're doing this in complete secrecy. And this is the first time in our legislature that a government has ever withheld the text of the legislative agenda. So, and there's an open letter released by the Communities No Cuts, a letter that was all MLAs, that the, all the bills should be reintroduced with full text. Because I don't even know how you're supposed to vote on something if you can't read the contents of the bill. I don't understand how that works. And uh, three, so yeah, this letter that I'm talking about is to make the 19 bills available no later than March 4th and to proceed on the second reading until after at least 14 legislative sitting days. So, yeah, because we should be able to read the fucking bills. You know, we elect the government and now they're trying to hide. They're trying to hide. I'm not going to. Yeah, the opposition party is just doing their job, holding up things and and debating it out. And then the sitting party decides to, oh, yeah, we're just going to act like a child and just uh, we're going to punish you in the democratic process and not be transparent and <laughs> erode democracy in Manitoba. Great. That's a, setting a great precedent. And I have no idea that, that rule in this legislature should be done away with. So that's, that's all I have. I mean, this was kind of, I am recording this after the fact. I think next week, uh, Derek and I will talk about this more in depth, but that's just the current information I have for you guys right now. Uh, that's all for this topic. We got three stories on Canada today, so today's going to be Canada heavy. We're going to be looking at the favorability polls for the Canadian parties. Uh, we're going to be looking at a failed promise by the Liberals to remove the unsafe drinking water provisions for all Native American reservations. And also, apparently, Canada's economy has shrank a lot. I mean, no shit since the COVID-19 lockdown started. But first, before we cover those things, we're going to be talking about the United States. Right? Of course. Always talk about the United States. And you may be wondering why the United States obviously is the sole superpower in the, in the world right now. And obviously the U.S. media companies largely dominate the landscape. So that's why we end up with an overabundance of news coming out of the U.S. Also, they're a massive trading partner and a huge economy worldwide. So whatever happens to them largely affects everyone else. So even though I loathe to cover... United States stories over or before some of the Canadian ones. I mean, these are very important, especially since, since a lot of the things that happen politically in the United States tends to come back and affect Canada in some way. So basically, Joe Biden not living up to campaign promises during the election. In fact, one of the biggest ones was the $15 minimum wage, which we all thought, wow, that's, that's really great that he'll actually push for this. Now, even, even though that the $15 minimum wage movement started back in 2012, and if you account for inflation, $15 in 2012 is now worth only $13.17 in 2021. So the fight for 15, which started in 2012, as time goes on, for this issue, its, its position is slowly weakened. Now, of course, a lot of the people in favor of it support provisions like chaining the minimum wage to inflation, which is a wonderful idea. I mean, they should have already instituted that back when the minimum wage was first conceived. But of course, they were stupid and they didn't do that. But that's one of the problems with having, when it comes to monetary situations, using a single number, 15 
dollars as your rallying cry when of course the actual value of that money changes over time now if they wanted to stay true to the 2012 call to, to action the equal value of $15 would be $17 nowadays this is all in US currency of course $17 nowadays is what you'd be looking at if you wanted to stay true so yeah $17 nowadays a lot more than what it is right now but anyways People were applauding Biden because they were surprised he was actually going to do something progressive. Turns out, <clears throat> not going to happen, <laughs> right? Not going to happen. The Senate and the House, right, they have razor thin margins of majority. And, you know, everybody knows how legislation works. You got to pass it through the chambers of Congress, right? The House of Representatives and also the Senate in Canada it works the same way. Uh, the only difference being that the Senate is not elected and we do not have an executive branch aka the president. Our prime minister is just the leader of the party with the highest number of seats in the House of Commons. So they have a razor thin margin and they're using something called budget reconciliation in the Senate in order to pass the COVID-19 relief bill, which would include a $15 federal minimum wage increase. What that basically means, budget reconciliation, it's just a way to, it simply makes it that you only need a simple majority to pass legislation, whereas usually you need 60 votes in order to avoid what's called a filibuster. It's, it's another jargon term that they use. Filibuster just forces the need to have 60 votes in the House. It's a thing where somebody stands up and they're supposed to speak for like as long as the quote unquote filibuster is in effect. Filibuster, of course, requires that, like I just said, that they need 60 votes in the Senate in order to end the filibuster and pass legislation. Just think of it like this. Budget reconciliation means they only need 51 votes because there's only there's 100 senators. They only need 51 votes to pass legislation. But here's the thing. There's this rando, this random member of the staff there called the Senate parliamentarian. They're supposed to look at the legislation that is being passed and say if it fits under whatever criteria of, let's say if they have a council for budget office, or if somebody's, you know, like they have these different councils and, and shit like that. Whether or not the legislation fits within those councils, or within those, for this case, if the legislation actually fits in what budget reconciliation is supposed to be for. Now, this is not an elected position. This is an appointed position. And at any point in time, that person could be fired or you could just ignore their decision. But it's just another, you know how the Democrats are. They don't like lifting a finger. So the Senate parliamentarian came out of nowhere and struck down this COVID relief bill on the grounds that it didn't meet the criteria for the reconciliation process. Of course, you know, the Senate parliamentarian, like I just said, can be overridden, fired or ignored. So. They have no real power. If the Democrats want to do it, they could simply just do it. So, but of course, that gives the Dems another excuse to do absolutely nothing. And now the Senate Democrats are saying that even if parliamentarian wasn't there, they still wouldn't have the votes because there are some very conservative, two very conservative senators, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema would block it, which is ridiculous because... If you have a presidency, right, Biden right now has over 90% approval rating, which is ridiculously high, but it's just because after Trump, people are so shocked.
by his presidency that they're just looking for any sort of normalcy and that's what they're getting and so he's a high approval rating so you can you can weaponize that against the more conservative factions within your own party so you can use that to force joe manchin and Kristen cinema to vote the way you want via threatening them that when the next election comes you're going to campaign for any primary challengers and basically end their political career. This is something that a lot of presidents in the past have done. You know, FDR did it in the 30s. Um, LBJ did it in the 60s. It was, you know, it's, it's one of the things that you have as a president, a person who can spearhead for issues and whatnot, utilizing the bully pulpit, as it's called, to force them to vote. Of course, Biden is falling back, though, on the thing that Barack Obama fell back on after he lost the House and the Senate in, I think, the 2012 election, which is the idea of the powerless president, that, that I'm so beholden to Congress, and if I own the majority, I can't do anything. You know, of course, executive orders, you can do a number of executive orders, and you can force things through, but the thing is, the Democrats are weak. They're weak. And their ideology has been eroded over the years by lots of the big money contributions that they take. And they're not the true leftist party that they used to be. So even these bare bones campaign promises, movements that have been around for years, right? The fight for 15 has been around for a long ass time. Even then, they are holding back. Now, thankfully, turns out Bernie is coming in and saying that he's going to force the vote. He doesn't give a damn. He's forcing that vote. So good on Bernie. We hope that that goes well. But I mean, even even to talk more about what's going on with Biden, what's going on with Biden um, in those last two runoff elections, I think they're called in Georgia, those runoff elections that were won by Andy Warnock and John Ossoff, those two Democrats that won, they were not expecting to win those elections, but they ran specifically on the $2,000 relief check. In fact, Warnock literally had ads where there was a picture of a check with two grand on it saying, you're going to get this on whenever the, uh, was it January 21st or whenever the president sworn in, that you're going to get these bills. And now that with Democrats immediately caved to $1,400 for the relief check, which is not what was promised, right? The ads literally had two grand on the check. It wasn't 1400 their jargon technocratic explanation is that it's six hundred dollars which was the initial relief under trump plus fourteen hundred dollars equals two grand it's like no fuck face that's not what you promised right typical typical bullshit they actually the story came out they were calling they had some phone calls to biden saying like listen you have to do this you have to push hard for this because we're not going to win re-election if you don't pass these two grand checks you're screwing us over and i don't think they care i don't think the democrats care because they're weak but we'll we'll see We'll see what happens, but it's not surprising. So that's what's going on in the United States. So the next story we have lined up is the liberals broke their promise. The Canadian liberals broke their promise when it came to ending all long-term water advisories for First Nations reservations. And then there was a big expose. There's a big story about this uh, on the Globe and Mail entitled uh, No Clean Water, 39 First Nations Remain Under Long-Term Advisories. So, you know, to give the liberals a fair shot, they did end 60% of boiled water advisories, which is good, 
but they still failed to make their deadline, which was yesterday. And they haven't set a new deadline either. It just seems like it might not happen. And to imagine, you know, living in in one of these reservations during the COVID-19 crisis, right, the pandemic, everybody has to stay home. Meanwhile, you don't have clean water. We live in a first world country. I want you to think about this. We live in a first world country. And yet there are people who don't have clean water. That's unbelievable. There's this map that the Globe and Mail put up, long-term drinking water advisories in First Nations. And, you know, some of these have been under them for a long-ass time. In BC, one of them has been there for 18.3, 18.3 years. Uh, another for 14.4. In Saskatchewan, Star Blanket has been underneath for 13.1 years. Uh, Shoal Lake, which is right on the border between Ontario and Manitoba, has been underneath Clean Water Advisory for 23 years. Like, this is unbelievable, unbelievably ridiculous. And to imagine having to persevere through the pandemic in a First Nations community without clean water, you know, with the whole boiling, boil water advisory, is unbelievable. So yeah, this promise that was made by the Liberals was was a part of their 2015 election campaign, and they promised to eliminate all the long-term advisories on reserves by 2021. They set its target for March of this year. Now, well, it's March, March 2nd, and no dice. They've come out and said that we can't meet the deadline, unfortunately. Not a good look. Not a good look. Now, the November economic statement that the Liberals delivered included a $1.5 billion, $1.5 billion in funding toward this whole project. So it's possible that that would expedite the process. Now, I'm, I'm sure that the onset of the pandemic probably slowed down things significantly, but that's still no excuse, really. So we'll see. We'll see if they set a new deadline. We'll see if anything actually gets done. But some of these places is just unbelievable. Now, there's a NDP member of the House, Charlie Angus, who ran for leadership of the party back af- after Thomas Mulcair stepped down. And he pointed out that, pointed to a report from the Parliamentary Budget Office, published in 2017, which he said showed a clear signal that the Liberals have been on a long track to miss their target. You know, the PBO said at the time that the spending fell short of what would be required to meet the Liberals' promise, and they only were covering about 54% and 70% of total investments. Now, like I was saying, 60%, so about 99 long-term water advisors have been lifted, which is very good, but unfortunately, not good enough. Now, something that the conservatives before the Liberals, under Stephen Harper, they faced massive scrutiny for not addressing this issue and properly going about fixing the problem. The liberals come in and they fix maybe 50 to 60 percent of them, but they don't completely do it. I mean, it's another example of you have the conservatives who do nothing, and then the liberals will give you almost the full thing, but they never go all the way. You got to push them to go all the way. Same thing with pharmacare. You know, I still don't believe that they're truly going to go about and beat them. Never know. It's just another thing where you can't really trust them. <clears throat> so next up, we got some information on the effects that the coronavirus has had on the Canadian economy. This is coming from the CBC information. So Canada's economy shrank by 5.4% last year in total, according to Stats Canada, which makes 2020 the worst year for the country's economic output since record-keeping began. Obviously, this was expected because I don't think... I mean, the whole idea of having everybody quarantine basically 
is unprecedented in our history. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Even though there were some improvements, GDP grew by 2.3% in the last quarter of 2020. Last quarter means last three months. But that was not nearly enough to offset the massive plunge that it took in the middle of the year. So for comparison purposes, if you want to see how we're, we're matching up, Canada's economy contracted almost twice as much as the U.S. did during this whole pandemic, despite the U.S. seeing far more cases per capita. So for example, the U.S. economy shrank only 3.5% last year compared to our 5.4% decrease. Now, granted, you also have to take into effect, yeah, despite the U.S. seeing far more cases, well, I think, well, that's expected, though, because the reason why the United States has far more cases is because they didn't adequately implement lockdown policies in a lot of states, especially the southern states, and therefore they received a shitload more cases and people were still going to work. So people were still going to work and the economy was still somewhat flowing. But because of that, you saw a significantly higher amount of cases than Canada did, which we did the responsible thing, which was protect our population from this disease. Yeah, Canada's doing a lot better than the United States is when it comes to people dying of sickness. However, the economy is suffering. You know, I'll take a little bit of uh, a couple percentage points drop in the GDP over uh, dead Canadians any day. The preliminary forecast, this is very early to say this, but the expected growth would be 0.5% in the Canadian economy uh, looking forward to this next year. Another interesting to point out is that uh, Canada's economy lost 213,000 jobs in January, which is five times more than economists were expecting, apparently. So that's not good. In total, Canada now has lost 858,000 858, fewer jobs than it did in February of last year before COVID-19, obviously. And another 529,000 people have managed to keep their job, but are working much less than they would normally because of the pandemic. Now, something very interesting, though, about this article is that is where the job losses are taking place. So almost all of these job losses came from Ontario and Quebec. So they lost a combined 251,000 jobs, mostly in retail, accommodation, and food services. Now that plunge was offset slightly by job gains in Alberta, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island, which is very interesting because I would say that, how did, how did we have job gains? I don't understand how that worked. I mean, I just seen a lot of people did get laid off and couldn't go to work. So I don't really know what's up with that. And apparently the jobs number held steady in BC, Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. So, you know, very interesting to see. I mean, obviously this was expected, you know, and actually recently on Twitter, there was uh, a Serb is trending. And, you know, I clicked on that hashtag just to see that, you know, there's some people complaining, some business owners saying, oh, it's so hard to find workers when people make more money on the CERB than they would working at my job, at my business, which is just such, you're outing yourself, basically. You're saying, yeah, yeah, we don't pay our workers a living wage. You know, that's not a good look, sweaty, as, as Sasan would say. That's not a good look. For you to come out and say that, like $1,800 is literally free money from the government because people are hurting so badly. And you're coming out and saying, yeah, yeah, that's right. If you work for us, if you produce profit, if you allow us to exploit your labor to produce profit on our behalf, 
we are not going to pay you or we do not pay you enough to live. Obviously, well, yeah, obviously nobody's going to want to work at that company. Nobody's going to want to have their labor. Nobody's going to want to have their labor exploited uh, for profits on someone else's behalf and not be able to live. I mean, if you really think about it, it's kind of barbaric how our economy really works. What's expected of you in this economy? Uh, that you work eight hours a day for five days a week, so a 40-hour work, just so you can have 48 hours of freedom on the weekends. Hopefully at some point the human race will move past that in some ways. Yeah, Canada's economy, not doing so well. <laughs> and now looking at the polls. So there's been murmurs, some talk, about the possibility of there being a forced election because, as you know, the Liberals, Liberal Party of Canada, has a minority government meaning that of the 338 total seats in the House of Commons, the Liberal Party of Canada is the single party with the high, largest number of seats. No other single party has more seats than they do. But if all of the parties come together in a vote of no confidence, they can force an election because the Liberals' 154 seats or votes versus Everyone else's 184 together, they can force an election. There's also a possibility of the prime minister calling a snap election, which is usually when the polls are so high in their favor, they decide that they might as well do that because it appears they'll gain seats if they call an election. Now, you have to be very careful when you do that because there's a very real thing that happens in politics. It's called election fatigue. The population is fatigued by too many elections. They're Primarily because of, you know, the advertising, the marketing that takes place with the advent of an election, right? All the political ads bombarding the television and whatnot, people knocking on your door, people sliding slips in your mailbox, stuff like that. Apparently people, you know, some people don't really like that. And, you know, always having to pay attention to the news and the, and the newspapers and the media being more reactionary and stuff. You know, you have to keep up to date with things. So you have to be careful when you call an election like that, that the population won't knee-jerk reaction and your poll numbers will drop because of the fact that you called a snap election. But right now, the polls, according to the CBC poll tracker, the liberals are still sitting at 35.1%. These are the poll averages. The liberals are sitting at 35.1%. The conservatives are sitting at 29.9%, so they're down uh, 0.4, and the NDP are sitting at 19%, so they went up 0.8. The Bloc Québécois are sitting at 6.7%, and the Greens are sitting at 6.5%, and others are sitting at 2.9%. So that's the current breakdown. So if an election happened now, they have the probability, the probabilities they have set up are there's a 45% chance the probability of liberals winning a majority. There's a 46% chance of liberals winning the most seats, but not a majority, so a minority government. And there's only a 9% probability of conservatives winning the most seats. Now, of course, these, these probabilities are all, you know, bullshit. But just based on 10,000 simulations of the elections, if they happen today, that's what, of all the different scenarios, that's what uh, they've ended up with. Also, something recently that caught my eye Apparently, you know how we cover the whole GameStop stock price shenanigans, the big uh, short squeeze, as it was called. And of course, that ended, you know, it crashed on February 2nd, 
it dropped to $90 US from the previous high of 325, which is ridiculous. And, you know, it continued to kind of slowly go down until, um, slowly go down into February, down to about the low of $40. And then uh, for some reason on, on the 24th of February, it jumped up to 91 and now it's sitting at about 120. So it's very interesting what's going on there. Um, usually when bubbles burst, they burst for good. So I'm not quite sure what's going on. Maybe there was a call to action again on the Wall Street Bets Reddit, but I'm not sure. I just found that very interesting. So yeah, anyways, guys, that was all the stories I had lined up for you today. Um, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. I know it might be a little bit lonely having only one person on the mic today, but that's what circumstances called for, and that's what had to happen. So I hope you guys enjoyed. Make sure to come back and listen to us next time. That was the Canadian Perspective signing off. <laughs>